Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Neutral Organics, one of my favorite Australian whole food companies who provide a range of organic, honest whole food products to nourish you and your family. You can follow them on social media at Neutral Organics. Today's expert guest is the incredible Dr. Rachel Goldman, who is a licensed psychologist practicing in New York City. She specializes in health and wellness, including health behavior change, stress management, eating behaviors, obesity, bariatric surgery, and weight management. She helps her clients achieve their health and wellness goals utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy. Dr. Rachel serves on many professional committees and thrives in the wellness community in New York, where she can meet and bring like-minded individuals together to network, learn, and facilitate behavioral changes that will promote healthier and happier lives. You can follow Dr. Rachel on social media at Dr. Rachel NYC, that's Dr. with a D-R, Rachel NYC, or visit her website, www.drrachelnyc.com. Don't forget to leave me a positive rating or review in your podcast app if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome, Dr. Rachel, to the podcast. We're very excited to have you here with us today. And I'd love for you to start by telling our listeners what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist in New York City, specializing in health and wellness, um, specifically related to health behavior change, obesity, weight management, um, eating disorders or disordered eating behaviors, rather, I I like to call it, um, as well as stress management. And I have a private practice where I see individual clients working on those things, as well as doing corporate wellness and consulting um, here in New York City. Such a diverse range of topics, and I absolutely love that you focus on health behavior change, eating behaviors, and just health and wellness in general. What made you decide to focus on those areas? Yeah, so it's kind of a long story. (laughs) Um, So we won't go into too much detail, but it actually all started um, with because I was a, I, I used to dance growing up. Um, It was a hobby and I knew I never wanted it to turn into a profession, but my freshman year of college, um, I did go to school for something called dance science um, and was exposed to eating disorders, being in the dance world. Um, And I actually immediately decided to change majors, change schools, because I was so interested in studying human behavior and kind of just understanding eating disorders um, and why people develop them, et cetera. So because of that, I transferred um, and decided to go into psychology. And then kind of one thing led to another. Um, I was doing research more in the eating disorder side of like anorexia and bulimia. And then all of a sudden one day kind of realized I would rather help the average person lose weight and get healthy as opposed to a smaller subset of individuals Um, with those diagnosed clinical disorders. Um, And then once again, kind of things just led to another. And then when I was working in a hospital, I really specialized in obesity and bariatric surgery. And then since I left the hospital to do private practice and corporate wellness, I found it really um, helpful to kind of be more general in the sense of helping, once again, the more average person 
um, as well as doing stress management work and, and other things. I could talk about that forever. <laughs> Such a rewarding career, isn't it? Yes. Now, what would you say would be one of the main reasons that clients book in with you? Is there a certain sort of subset or type of patient that you get that regularly book, books in with a clinical psychologist? Definitely. So when I was in the hospital, I really specialized in um, bariatric surgery. So pre and post surgery doing psycho um, social evaluations as well as pre and post-op therapy. So that has continued in my private practice. So I still continue to see bariatric surgery patients. And then I also see more general weight management, kind of your average person that might want to, might want to lose some weight to get healthy, um, as well as some body image issues as well. So I would say my private practice clients are mainly those kind of body image um, and weight management, either related to bariatric surgery or not. Mm-hmm. And would you get sort of uh, clients that you would, I guess, clinically define as a healthy body weight, but that still have, um, I guess, issues and, and problems around disordered eating and, and body dysmorphia and that sort of thing? Yeah, I've had a few. I would say most of the clients that I see are really more in the um, obese category, but there have been a few patients, even some that were underweight, to be honest, um, that did come to me for body image issues. I mean, it's a growing field, isn't it? It is. And I think it's unfortunate, but I think um, social media actually, you know, I think has something to do with that as well, related to body image and comparing and and a lot of disordered eating behaviors in general now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, I love that you practice with CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Can you tell our listeners at home a little bit about CBT and how it could potentially help them to achieve some of their own health goals? Sure. So CBT um, or cognitive behavioral therapy, as you said, is is pretty well known. Um, It's a type of psychotherapy that um, was started back in the 60s. Um, I think it was the 60s by Aaron Back. um, And he's one of the like founding fathers of CBT. And the idea is that if we can change our cognitions or our thoughts and or change our behaviors, that um, it changes how we feel. So our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are all linked. And in CBT, we can work on either changing the thoughts or the behaviors, and then the rest kind of follow. Um, And many conditions can be treated with CBT. I think the first manual was um, specifically for treating depression over 50 years ago. And now CBT is known as an evidence-based treatment for several different, um, not just disorders, but different difficulties and concerns as well. And would you say that that's the number one sort of therapy that you use in your practice? Absolutely. Yes. I, I consider myself very CBT. Um, CBT also for, for those that don't know is, um, usually more short term. It's very, um, goal oriented and problem focused. And also it's the therapist and the client working together as a team. So, you know, I always tell my clients that, you know, this is only going to work if they can be honest with me and, um, you know, they can trust me, but it also is me helping them kind of build this toolbox. I always say kind of like building this toolbox of tools and skills. So one day they won't need to be in therapy. The goal is that each client actually becomes their own therapist because of the skills that individuals learn in cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Wonderful. All about empowerment, hey? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, I know a lot of clients, um, particularly of mine, I get messages through social media. They tell me that it's not so much the knowledge side of things when it comes to weight loss. You know, I think a lot of people um, know that a salad is going to be better than a hamburger, for example. So it's not to say that we don't know what to do. It's more around that mindset and that behavior change. So can you tell our listeners at home, why do we do certain things? even though we know better sometimes. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. I mean, all of my patients say, you know, I know what's healthy. You know, I've, I've, I read things I, I know, um, but it's just so difficult. And it's difficult because habits are very difficult to change. Um, and I always explain to people that, you know, one day, for instance, like to talk about like mindless eating, for, for instance, if somebody's watching television at night and decides to get a snack, Um, you know, it started one day just because they wanted it. And then it turned into this association of I'm sitting in front of the TV, I'm going to eat. And then that turns into a habit. And that, you know, a lot of times those, I mean, those habits are automatic behaviors and they're very difficult to change and, or they've been going on for years and we can't expect to change these things just overnight um, without taking some work and practice. So it is very difficult. And then there's some people that just don't want to give up certain foods. You know, they might say, yes, a hamburger isn't healthy, you know, if this is what they don't want to eat. Um, but I, but I'm not willing to give this up, um, which is not a bad thing either. I mean, I, I do not believe in, you know, eliminating complete food groups or being too restrictive because when we're restrictive, then we can feel um, you know, like we can't have it. And that can lead to, of course, overeating and binge eating, but it is very difficult for people because we have these habits. And I think also because food is such an important part of our life and society that it's really hard to change. Um, you know, it's not like drugs and alcohol where we can just eliminate them completely. We need food to survive. Mm, Definitely. And if it really is coming back to certain, you know, habits and behaviors that we associate food with, or, you know, certain situations or environments that we have these associations with food that trigger them, what is that first step in helping our listeners to, to overcome this? Yeah. So I think the first step is actually acknowledging that this is kind of an automatic behavior or a habit. Um, So many people do it kind of unconsciously, mindlessly, and don't even realize it until, you know, after the fact. Um, So first acknowledging that and accepting it if they want to change it. Um, Not everybody might want to make that change. And then when they do, I usually say to find an alternative behavior to do in place of it. Um, you know, some people say, just don't do it. But if we say not to do it, then somebody's going to sit there being like, well, I'm used to eating right now. You know, what am I going to do? And it's like the pink elephant in the room that just doesn't go away. Um, so first acknowledging it and then coming up with an alternative, healthier behavior to do in its place. Mm, and you touched on a really important point when you brought up that the awareness, because I think for a lot of people, they don't even realize that it's something that they're doing. So would you say that a strategy like mindfulness might be helpful for some people just to almost bring them back to that present moment and make them aware of sort of the behaviors that they're doing on a day-to-day basis or a moment-to-moment sort of basis? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do a mindfulness eating exercise with many of my patients. Um, I'm 
I'm sure you've heard of it. It's, you know, you can Google it. Every, every, a lot of people have heard of it, but the reason exercise, um, I find very helpful that I'll do with a lot of patients just to learn how to really be mindful of, you know, eating one reason, um, and slowing down people's eating, I think is another good way to be more in the present and being mindful to be able to really understand what's going on and being able to feel satisfied before somebody gets to the feeling of being overly full. Um, but being more mindful of all of those things, including their emotions around foods, certain trigger foods, certain trigger emotions and stressors are very important. Mm, and I love that exercise in mindful eating. I think it would have been back in my first degree. Um, I did a Bachelor of Health Science and Nutrition and we first did that exercise in mindful eating. And I remember in class, we passed around a box of Cadbury chocolates, which are um, they're like uh, favorites. They're like little mini types of chocolates. And I remember the yeah. first time that I actually truly tasted that plain dairy milk Cadbury chocolate. And for me, I'm someone who's always loved chocolate and always thought I loved every single type of chocolate, but eating that really mindfully, I could have eaten it in one, you know, easy, easy bite, but I took the tiniest little nibbles. I got about halfway through and I actually tasted the flavors in it and realized right. that plain dairy milk chocolate is not something that I actually really like. And I've since mm -hmm. been able to identify that I absolutely love chocolate, but it's definitely very brand and type specific in terms of the types of chocolate that I like as well. So it's a really wonderful exercise for so many people to do. I think even just to be aware of the different flavors and, and textures and tastes in certain foods as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so great. And I think people don't realize how great it is uh, and how to really truly appreciate food um, or to not like certain foods until they're able to do that and use all of their senses. Um, you know, like when I do the raisin exercise, so many times afterwards, people say, wow, I didn't realize that one raisin, not a whole box of raisins, but one raisin had so much flavor and the texture and everything like that. So it, it is pretty amazing to say. 100%. And a quote that I love saying um, again and again on social media is that one piece of chocolate actually tastes just as good as 10 pieces of chocolate or one scoop of ice cream is just as good as a whole tub. It's just that we don't stop to enjoy that from the very first bite rather exactly. than wait until the very last bite. And that's where so many people run into problems, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I actually usually joke with my clients that if I blindfolded you and gave you a few bites of something that only the, like you would enjoy the first few bites and then probably not even realize that it was something else. Like if I put cardboard in front of them or something instead, <laughs> um, you know, it, I mean, you know, probably not, but the point is, you know, that people eat so quickly and mindlessly mm -hmm. that they really don't enjoy their food. They're actually more so like swallowing their food instead of chewing and really tasting their food. Mm, particularly if people might be eating for, you know, very emotional reasons as well. You know, often people will go from a sweet food to a salty food to a crunchy food. Um, and then they keep swapping and changing between the different types of flavors and textures because I say to them, you were never really hungry to begin with. And you're looking for satisfaction in food, which will never give you any satisfaction because you're trying to soothe an emotion that was never hungered to begin with. So would you agree exactly. with that sort of concept as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Either that or, um, I sometimes also find that if people are eating all different types of foods that sometimes like they really just wanted say a piece of chocolate, but they were trying mm -hmm. to avoid the chocolate because in their head they're saying, I can't eat chocolate. So they're trying to eat everything else. And then they just come back to the chocolate at the end anyways. Um, but yes, emotional eating is one thing that I talk to many of my patients about and having them understand the difference between physiological hunger and emotional hunger and being able to identify that within themselves. 
Wonderful. And if our listeners at home are particularly interested around that sort of topical area of non-hungry eating, I've actually recorded a whole podcast. I think it was podcast number two on non-hungry eating, which really helps listeners to identify the difference between true hunger and what I call head hunger. And I really think that is the first step in being able to sort of stop and ask yourself, am I really hungry or is there something else at play here? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I saw um, on your social media when you had posted that you had done that podcast and and the title in it or whatever, the, the first line in your social media post, I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I tell my clients. It was like the exact wording. It was great. <laughs> Wonderful. So glad that we're on the same page. Now, yeah. I would love to pick your brains around self-sabotage because self-sabotage is often something that I've thought is really about, you know, those two competing values in competition with each other. And the value that wins is often the one that doesn't support our health or our goals long-term. So I guess what I'm trying to say is how do we focus on that long-term gain and not give in to the short-term pain? Because a lot of clients often say to me, I know what I'm doing. I shouldn't be doing it. But in the short term, it gives me so much pleasure and it's actually so painful Mm -hmm. to change in the short term. So how do we focus more on that long-term gain? Yeah. So um, I hear that all the time as well. And I think there's a few kind of tips and skills that that I talk to my clients about for that. Um, one of them is that often when people do kind of self-sabotage, um, there are physical symptoms that follow. Um, so if somebody decides to, you know, binge on chocolate because that's what they wanted in the moment for that pleasure, usually after that binge, they don't feel well. They feel uncomfortably full. They feel ill, things like that. And I try to tell my clients to try to remember the feeling or the thought that followed the behavior And that thought or feeling that followed the behavior is what's going to stop them from doing that behavior again, which is not easy. So like I always tell them, you know, this is work. I'm not sitting here saying that this is going to be easy. But if you can remember the last time you ate this and you felt sick, then maybe, not always, but maybe that will prevent you from doing it again. Um, And when we talk about, for instance, CBT with our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors linked, if somebody is able to think about the thought that's going to follow the behavior. I always say the thought that follows the behavior is actually more important than the behavior itself. So if somebody's going to have a piece of chocolate, but then beat themselves up over it and feel guilty about it, then that's problematic. But if somebody's going to be able to go into the situation and say, I really want a piece of chocolate right now, no big deal. You have a piece of chocolate, you're not going to feel guilty about it. Then there's nothing wrong with eating that chocolate. Um, so I kind of like tell them that as well to think about what the thought's going to be afterwards. If you're going to feel guilty about it, then it is not worth it. Um, and once again, doing some other behavior or distraction technique um, will be helpful at that time. Wonderful. That's such a great strategy. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I'm sure you are learning so much from Dr. Rachel, but I wanted to take just one minute out of this incredible podcast to tell you a little bit more about Nutrio Organics, because without their generous sponsorship of this podcast, you wouldn't be learning so much right now. Nutrio Organics is one of my favorite Australian whole food companies who provide a range of honest, organic whole food products to nourish you and your family. From plant-based, gut-friendly protein to collagen, whole food products, bars, and more, Nutrio Organics source the highest quality ingredients to create the most delicious and nutritious products that are easy to incorporate into your daily life and support your well-being. You can use the discount code they had kindly offered you guys, which is Leanne, for 15% off the range of whole food products. And go and check them out at www.nutraorganics.com.au 
And again, that discount code is Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, for 15% off their whole food range. Now, straight back to our podcast with Dr. Rachel. Now, is there anything that you would recommend for your clients to help them, I guess, remember that feeling or that behavior long term or, or a little bit later? I guess what I'm trying to say is that often if, say, somebody overeats um, once a week, by the time that Friday night rolls around the next week, often they might not remember that, you know, uncomfortableness or feeling right. a little bit unwell because they'd overeaten. Is there anything that you recommend to help jog their memory in terms of remembering that feeling around that behavior? Are you a fan of journaling? or anything like that? Yeah. So journaling is great. Um, if somebody is self-monitoring and like logging their food, I will say, you know, similar to journaling, I'll say next to, you know, that food, maybe put how you were feeling afterwards, both physical and mentally. Um, and then also reminders like in your phone. So if an individual knows, say Friday night is a trigger for them, maybe Friday night, they can have a reminder in their phone or some, or their computer or something to go off that reminds them like, you know, don't eat the chocolate you felt sick afterwards last time. Um, And I think the key with any of this is really to figure out what your triggers are and not to have those trigger foods around the house either. Like I always say, what is available and accessible is going to be what you eat. And if you are the type of person that opens a box of cookies and can't have just one and is going to eat the whole box, then that's something not to keep in your house. Um, So kind of identifying these things within yourself is really important. And I think in order to do that is being more mindful, um, not just with our eating, but in general with ourselves to be able to become aware of these things and insightful. Mm -hmm. And is there a certain time point, I guess, in terms of recovery or working with a psychologist that you might actually suggest, you know, maybe originally don't keep these foods in the house at all, but maybe a certain point in their recovery where it might be beneficial for them to buy, you know, a small amount of these foods say instead of um, like a 24 pack of cookies, they might just buy a little mini pack of three cookies um, and actually be able to have that in the house almost to sort of prove to themselves that they're they're strong enough around that food and they have control around that food. Is that sort of appropriate for someone to introduce partway through their therapy or or anything like that? Yeah. So actually I, I wouldn't say kind of a blanket statement with it that everybody's very different. Like I do have some patients that for instance, I it is just not healthy for them to have certain things in their house. But then I have other patients that for instance, they'll buy like a bag of chocolate, but, or a bag of chips or pretzels or something. And I'll tell them the second they get home to portion them out into smaller portions with like, you know, little Ziplocs or, you know, Tupperware. Um, and then they're fine. But I think every person is very different. Um, and for some people, it's just safer for them not to have it. And if they want it, you know, I always tell them, if you want it, by all means, put on your shoes, get your keys, go outside and get it, because then that also gives them that lag time. So that say 10, 15 minutes that it takes to get ready, if they really wanted that, they're going to still go. If it was just out of emotional, they're probably going to say it's not worth the effort. Um, and then they're going to forget about it or they're not actually going to go outside and, you know, go get that candy or whatever it is that they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Great strategy. Because I know that if that was me, honestly, like 99% of the time I would be like, it's just not worth it. I'm not putting clothes on. I'm not putting shoes on. I'm going to find my car keys, go drive out at nighttime just to go get that. It's just simply not worth it. So great strategy. 
Right now, any other strategies that you would suggest, um, I guess, around self-sabotage? Because there are a lot of people out there who might set themselves a goal. For example, um, you know, I want to lose 10 kilos and they might lose, say, five kilos, for example, and then they almost start to reward themselves with food and their behaviors start to take that sort of backward step and they begin to self-sabotage all of those wonderful things that they've done. So any other strategies for our listeners at home who might be really struggling with that self-sabotage? Right. So I think another good strategy um, related to any health behavior change is when looking at people's goals um, is to set small goals so we can feel like we're succeeding on a regular basis and we feel like we're accomplishing something as opposed to waiting until we you know, accomplish that big goal. And then I think when people do set these big goals for themselves, they then feel like they need to reward themselves as opposed to just being kind of proud and feeling motivated um, with the smaller goals. I also don't recommend that people set number goals, like weight loss goals, but to rather set behavioral goals. Um, So if we're setting a behavior goal of like, I'm going to go to the gym at least three days this week, or I'm going to increase my water by X amount of ounces, um, you know, if we do those behavior goals, the weight will come down if that's what somebody's goal is. But that number goal can really also set us up for failure and or make us feel like, oh, wow, I, I lost the five kilos. I'm done. Now I can have the chocolate or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we really think more about the behaviors, I don't think people are so inclined to rewarding themselves with the behavior that they've been trying to work for, if that makes sense. Um, So if somebody has been trying to eat healthier, they're now not going to eat that chocolate necessarily. But like I said before, I also don't agree with like eliminating things. If somebody really wants a piece of chocolate, I think it's okay to have it um, as long as they're making that conscious decision. Definitely. And I love that around setting behavior goals because I always find that particularly with my clients, they're so fixated on that number and it's this magical number. And I say to them, you know, how did you come up with this number? Or, you know, and they say, it's, it's something that I've always wanted to achieve. Or my doctor told me I should weigh this much, or, you know, they might be 35 years old and they say to me, you know, I want to weigh this much because that's what I weighed when I was 20. And I felt fabulous when I was 20. And I always remind them that, you know, you're, you know, you're 35 now, this is 15 years later. Sometimes just a number is not really very realistic. So in terms of taking that focus off the fixation on a number and focusing more around those behaviors, I think is a wonderful thing to, to really accomplish and achieve. Yeah. And also the number is, is just difficult to focus on because I'll tell patients like, say they want to lose 10 pounds and they lose eight pounds to them. They failed. Um, to me, that's a success. They lost weight. Um, so, you know, I think just thinking about the language that we use with goals is really important also. Um, and you know, if we set that number goal, it could take a year, it could take years to lose that weight and hit that number that they want. Whereas if we're setting these kind of smaller short-term behavioral goals, like I said, people really feel more accomplished and that keeps people motivated as opposed to when I lose 25 pounds, my life is going to be better. Well, that 25 pound weight loss may never come. Exactly. And as you mentioned, you know, they might get 22 pounds down and um, might, you know, call themselves a complete failure. Whereas in reality, it was actually really, really successful. Exactly. Right. 
Now, I see a lot of people who either lose a little bit of weight and use that as almost fuel and motivation to keep going versus a different type of person who will lose a little bit of weight. And as we talked about, you know, just self-sabotage and self-sabotage, what is that difference between person A and person B? Why does one thrive and use that as motivation and fuel to keep going and the other person just does the complete opposite and they just self-sabotage their behaviors? Is there any Mm -hmm. difference between... I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you see those two types of people as well. Yes. Yeah. And I would say that the difference is actually within the individual's thoughts and the way that they think about this. Um, so I call that like the yo-yo dieting and the all or nothing thinking. I actually call it the dieter's mentality. It's like, I'm on mm-hmm. a diet, I'm off a diet. I'm, I can eat this. I can't eat that. Um, I'm always going to do this. I'm never going to do this and all of those rules. And I think somebody that has that kind of thinking is going to be kind of a yo-yo dieter because they're either on the diet or they're off the diet. The second they, you know, if they're on some diet that say doesn't eat bread and now all of a sudden they have a bite of bread, there they are, they threw the towel and they, they failed their diet. Um, So what I do is I really try to get people away from that thinking um, and away from this all or nothing mentality and this dieting mentality and really get people to, you know, once again, focus on their health behaviors and thinking about this as a lifestyle, that it's not you're on a diet or you're off a diet. Um, We know that diets don't work and or the best diet is the one that's you're going to be able to continue. Um, you know, so I always say my definition of a, of a diet is something that you cannot maintain for the rest of your life. So most diets that are out there, people can't maintain for the rest of their life. So that's already setting them up to be a yo-yo dieter. Um, because the second you eat something that wasn't on that diet, you're now off the diet. So I think working on the cognitions and changing the way that we think about food and our health and our weight is really important. And I think that's what distinguishes somebody from um, being more motivated and staying through that healthy lifestyle versus somebody that's more of a yo-yo dieter. Love it. Love it. Now, in terms of goal setting, you know, we mentioned that once or twice. Do you have any particular types of, um, I guess, frameworks that you really like to use? Here in Australia, we um, tend to use what we call the SMART framework, you know, setting specific, measurable, I think it's achievable, realistic, timely goals. Is that something that you like to use or do you recommend any other types of frameworks? No, actually, I love that you said that because um, Mm -hmm. I always talk about SMART goals. Um, Every presentation I give, especially for my cognitive behavioral therapy for weight management one, I have a whole, a few SMART goal slides. Um, And I, I actually believe that we cannot fail in accomplishing our goals if we set SMART goals. Um, Because most of the time, the problem is that people are setting unrealistic goals. And if we're setting Mm -hmm. SMART goals, they are realistic. Um, so setting smart goals and setting short-term goals, I think is really important. Great. And I was actually going to ask you, cause I actually love to set goals for my own health, you know, for my own well-being, for my own business, that sort of thing. I do a weekly goal, a monthly goal and a couple of, you know, six month, 12 month, five year sort of type goals. Again, awesome. are you a fan of doing that as well? You know, breaking them yeah, down as yeah. so a short-term, intermediate, long-term? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always recommend having like the long-term goal because you are working towards something. So maybe if somebody says, this is my long-term goal, but then we can take that long-term goal and actually break it down into short-term goals. So whenever somebody says like, I want to do X, I'll say, okay, how do you plan to get there? 
And then that kind of helps determine those short-term goals. And then how do you do that? How do you do that? So if somebody say long-term goal is to run a marathon, um, you know, I always say you can't just wake up one morning and run a marathon. So how would you run a marathon? Well, I have to start running. Well, when are you going to start running? You know, how often are you going to start running? So then can just keep breaking it down to keep setting smaller and more short-term goals. Definitely. And I guess I'll give the listeners at home a little bit of an example about myself. You know, my long, long term goal is to be able to be fit and healthy and be able to enjoy my retirement. I want to be able to go on a cruise and go hiking and that sort of thing when I retire, you know, whether I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, whatever. But I want to be physically able to do that. I want to be in good health, good health enough to do that. And if I feed that back into smaller term goals day to day, I'm making really healthy, nourishing choices the majority of the time, but I'm still leaving time for a glass of wine or some chocolate or that sort of thing. But I can see that long-term goal in my future each day. And again, I think that's what a lot of people don't do. They set these tiny short-term goals like, I want to lose weight for a wedding or I want to look really good for this holiday where I'm going to Fiji or something like that. But they're not thinking long-term. So their behaviors never really stick, do they? Exactly. Yeah. And I think setting that long-term goal is that constant reminder. Um, Like I always say to people, to I think reminding ourselves of the why is very important and motivating. So for you, like reminding yourself that when I retire, I want to be able to do this. That's your why to keep doing all these little short-term goals and accomplishing your daily goals. Um, Whereas I think if people only see, like you said, like for the wedding or for the vacation, it's very easy to just give up after that wedding or vacation because you're only talking about going from now until the wedding. Um, So kind of having that vision And being able to see past it is very important to stay motivated. Wonderful. Dr. Angel, we've learned so much already and we're going to bring you back for a second podcast where we're going to chat about health, well-being, confidence and happiness. But I think we got so much out of today in terms of eating behaviors and self-sabotage because that's something that just so many people struggle with. So just before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners where they can reach out to you? So do you offer, you know, online consultations at all? And what are your social media pages as well? Sure. Yeah. So my website is drrachelnyc.com, which is D-R and then R-A-C-H-E-L-N-Y-C.com. And then my social media channels are also Dr. Rachel NYC. So to make that easy, um, I do therapy here in New York, but I can do and have done um, more consulting and coaching in other parts of the country and, and world. Um, we don't call it therapy just because when um, a psychologist, at least in the United States, is licensed per state. Um, so I, but I'm able to do consulting and other types of things like that. So I'm always happy for people to reach out to me via email or they can contact me on social media. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions um, also through, you know, Instagram or social media and email. But if people do want kind of like a consult or more, um, you know, information about the work that I do, we can talk about that as well. Wonderful. All right, guys, we will link Dr. Rachel's social media channels and website in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for coming on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. You've given us so much to think about and we can't wait to bring you back on the second episode to chat all things health, well-being, confidence and happiness. Great. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed the chat with Dr. Rachel today. 
And if you did enjoy this podcast, please tag me and share it in your Instagram or Facebook stories, or leave me a positive rating and review in the Purple Apple Podcast app in the ratings and review section underneath the episode list. This really helps my podcast get prioritized by Apple and helps me to disseminate evidence-based information to the people that need it the most. I cannot tell you guys how much I appreciate every single rating and review that you leave me. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next one.